This is episode number seven, part two, with Markand Thacker. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back. If you're tuning in, hopefully you have already heard part one with Mark and Thacker. It was a great episode and I decided to break it into two parts because there was so much great stuff going on. So we are going to go right into this bonus episode, part two with Mark and Thacker. And I just want to remind you to go over to the show notes page at christianhouse.com and join in the conversation and the comments. We use Facebook comments, so it's really easy to add some feedback or share this with your friends. We do appreciate you chiming in. And with that, let's get to it. But I wonder if you could talk about some other blind spots. I'm going to call them blind spots. What are the biggest blind spots that you find with the professionals in your orchestras, performers, the players? And maybe you could talk about the blind spots that, that you feel that conductors have or that musicians have in general, whether professionals or students. The things that keep them from making the music compelling. What are the biggest problems that you wish people would get fixed more? Trust. And by that I mean for a conductor... It's trust in ourselves and trust in the musicians. And certainly for a musician, it's, it's the same. I mean, you have to let go. If you want to open your ears, if you want to be fully moved, you have to absolutely let go. Let go of, of your place in the world. Let go of your individuality. Let go of that subjectness, that meanness to absorb yourself into the sound. But in order to do that, that's scary. So... You have to have a fundamental trust in yourself. For one of my own, in the journey of growing, was to go from a point where I didn't trust myself fully. So a lot of times I'd be conducting, I'd be trying to prove what a good musician I was. I'm trying to make this happen, do this, do that. And at a certain point, you know, I came to realize, well, wait a minute, I'm a good musician. And all I need to do is open myself to the sound and let it flow through me. And that's true of me, and it's really true of anyone. So that's why I say trust is the biggest thing that holds people back. I think when musicians, professional musicians, reach a certain uh, level of accomplishment, I think people want to say, okay, here's where I am, and I don't need to grow. Mm. And I don't know if that's about trust in themselves or just about comfort. You know, we all, at a certain point, we all put the fiddle down and go, you know, go out to dinner or go watch a ball game or something. You know, we all put the score down at a certain point. So we all have that point where, okay, that's good enough for me. But for some people, it stops far short of where they could go, I think.
Wow, that's great. And when you say trust, I mean, I take it, it's not, you don't mean just kind of don't think about anything, just do whatever you want. Because, I mean, to make music great, you have to be constantly focusing on all these things you mentioned, right? I mean, I mean, intonation. No, no, no. You don't have to be focusing on intonation. You have to be focusing on the quality of the experience. Mm. And in order to be moved, you have to focus on, okay, am I being moved? Well, I, I've mm. got to play in tune. Because mm. if I if I'm not in tune, well, that's definitely going to lessen the quality of my experience. So what about but, in the practice room? Is it the same thing in the practice room? No, because you're training. You know, it's like Michael Jordan. He's in the zone because he shoots from three and it goes in. If it clanks off the back rim, he's not really in the zone. So that's like playing in tune. You know, you got it's got to go in. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're in the practice room, should you be focusing on getting in the zone or you should be analyzing the intonation? Or I think you should be thinking in terms of the intonation, but, but you should also be thinking in terms of how that feels to play that note. So along these lines, trust, I mean, you said it's the biggest thing that sounds a little bit abstract, but I'm gonna, still going to take it as being focused on the right thing, which is this higher purpose or this higher intention. See, a lot of that is, is specific to my area, which is conducting. So my job is to guide an ensemble, to empower them to their best performance. And so if I don't trust myself, then I go out of the music to do stuff. If I don't trust them, then I try and make them do this or get them in this way or that way to do things instead of enabling them, empowering them, allowing them, joining them, trusting that they hear it. And then we can do it together. And I need to do it. I need to fully 100% be that sound, be that music. But I don't have to be beyond the music. It reminds me of being in a jazz band when I count off the tempo that I think I want and the, the rhythm section comes in on a tempo that I didn't think that I counted. But in that moment, I need to let it go because I can't change it. Unlike maybe in an orchestra where maybe you can change that tempo once it started. In a jazz band... <laughs> Conventional wisdom dictates that once that rhythm section starts where they think it's supposed to be, they're not going to move, uh, and you're not going to be able to make them move. And unlike a first violinist and string quartet, you're not going to dictate that tempo at all. You're not going to change it at all. But trust is so important in that circumstance because you have to trust the space and not try to force those spaces. As a first violinist and a quartet, and a string quartet, I think that's one of the enemies of musicality is that you feel that you're trying to force, you know, all the energy to happen. Maybe similarly as a conductor might have that temptation. So that's what it reminds me of. Now, going into music education then, what's missing in music education and what needs to change in music education to affect this change that you've mentioned so that more musicians are trusting or so that more musicians are creating music in a way that's compelling. I can speak to that issue in terms of teaching, conducting. And that's very much a philosophical question because a lot of the philosophy of conducting teaching is we learn to make gestures that generate sounds. And that's extremely limiting because the possibilities of our gesture are limited. What can we reflect in our gestures? We can reflect amplitude. We can reflect tension. We can reflect some metrical organization, some, some temporal organization on, on a few different levels. But, well, actually, I'll tell you, we can reflect temporal organization on three levels. We can give a discrete gesture for every beat. We can give an internal structure to that beat gesture. So it, if it could be divided in three, D, uh, D, uh, or 
There are different gestures. So, and then we can put those gestures within a pattern that reflects the metric organization of a bar. So two beats in a bar, three beats in a bar. But that's it. That's all we can do in terms of temporal organization. Tension, if the sound is more or less tense, we can have a little more or less tension in our body. We have two different ways of connecting to volume. In larger terms, uh, we can make bigger gestures that correspond to louder sounds and vice versa, but we can also connect with more subtle phrasing inflections with the height of the gesture, so giving gestures at different heights. That's it. That's all we can do. So it's a fair amount, but that's really limited, whereas the possibilities of sound are unlimited. To say that, well, when we're teaching conducting, what we're doing is we're giving people gestures so that they can generate sounds, we've already limited the entire scope of the process. What in fact happens, though, in the best music making is the musical impulse comes from the musicians. If the musicians play in tune, it's not because the conductor says, you play four cents sharper, you play three cents flatter. Uh, it's because they hear it. If they play together, it's because they connect to this collective pulse. They hear it and they do it. So what's our job then? Our job is to free our body so that we can physically, to the extent possible, join those sounds. We can conform our gestures to those sounds so that we can lead the musicians to respond to the sounds. So in terms of how we teach conducting, that I can discuss as far as teaching, teaching violin, man, you got me, that's hard. The difference between a great conductor I don't think is just how they communicate the music with gestures. I think it's about what you say verbally to the musicians. You know, that, I mean, those are the things that made an impact on me, maybe just as much, even maybe more than your gestures on the podium, as much as, you know, I don't know that I could have appreciated those as much, frankly, or that I was aware of what they did for me. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, well, sure, there's that process, of course. I do think it so much comes back to hearing. I mean, my wife is a great viola teacher and she talks to me about even just basic issues of playing in tune and she'll say you know I had XYZ student and I just tell them they have to listen to themselves in the practice room talking about making a sound it's not just hold your arm in this way or give put weight here it's really hear the sound and then oh that's how I do that I think teaching though it comes down to you have to know what the standard is and you have to show a student how to get there. And it's pretty much all you can do. Don't you also need to be motivated to teach? I mean, do you enjoy teaching? Oh, my God. I, I love it. I really love it. How do you get yourself into the framework and a frame of mind to where you love it? Because I think most people get reward from teaching, but there's a little bit of, if you got them to be honest, that would say, ah, well, it gets tiring or it's a drag. It feels outwardly directed. It feels like, a, I mean, teaching is sort of a selfless thing. Yeah, I have a good friend who's a pianist at a major conservatory. And I remember, this was several years ago, him telling me, I feel myself becoming a worse and worse pianist through the course of the hour. <laughs> I haven't had that experience. You know, I think people teach for different reasons, and there's a certain level of ego involved. Mm. So if you're teaching, 
you're in a superior position. You know, we don't get to be in superior positions that often in life. Most of the time, you know, most people feel kind of under the thumb of some person or situation. I mean, if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty, yeah, there's a certain attraction for teaching because, well, you get to feel superior. I would hope that's not my, my motivating factor, but um, I think there's a psychological motivation. I mean, I can just look at myself and I can think. I have spent a lot of time in thinking about things and I think figuring out a bunch of things. And for me, it's just if I'm able to share those things, it validates what I've done. So it's a kind of validation. So I wish I could say that it's all selfless, but, you know, look, realistically, uh, how much of what we do is totally selfless. And in fact, you know, something I tell the conductors, we're not selfless. You know, oh, I do it for the audience. No, you're doing this for you. You, you need to do it for you because you need to be up there being moved by the sound because if you're not moved by the sound, the musicians can't be moved by it. And if the musicians aren't moved, the audience can't be. So you have to be selfish. I love that. I say something similar to that a lot. You know, a big part of what I do is work with classical musicians to help them cross into improvisation and composition and other creative processes. And I find that people are afraid and they're insecure and they're stuck. And I think that part of that goes to a subconscious, the reason why they play music. And I think that it's because they're playing for an internalized teacher or an internalized parent. They're playing for the audience. They're playing to please the dead composer. And the problem with that is that you're never going to please everybody. You can't please everybody because people have different ideas of what's good and they have different tastes. So I try to stress that a lot to say, play for yourself. I love to hear you say that from a different angle. And I think it's so important for people to play music for themselves. I love that. Really quickly, your thoughts on a couple of the things. And I want to mention again to everybody that you need to go to markandthacker.com. And that's M-A-R-K-A-N-D. Thakar is T-H-A-K-A-R. To learn about these books that Mark Hand's written, to check out some different sound clips. And we're going to have the recordings that Mark Hand has conducted. And you can find more at the show notes page at christianhouse.com. Forgive me if you don't want to touch on this. You don't have to. But I've got to ask, what about sort of this quote-unquote demise of orchestras and or lack of business mindset among artists? I have two minds. One is that we're experiencing a kind of perfect storm of several decades of cuts in music education in schools, the explosion of entertainment possibilities, and the fact technology has resulted in the workday never ending. Because it used to be Friday at 5 o'clock, people leave the office, and then they're not working until Monday morning at 8.30. And... That doesn't happen anymore because we've got laptops and iPads and iPhones and work doesn't stop. You know, we're recording this at, you know, (laughs) 11.38 Eastern. Deep into the night. And (laughs) not that this is work, but I mean, sure it is. It doesn't doesn't stop. Right. You know, and people, you know, lawyers are taking briefs home and marketing people are taking their jobs home. And so people don't have that leisure time, it's just more like the chance to let down, to take a breath, to nurture this other spiritual side. Plus, you know, if, if you are looking for entertainment, you go on the internet and, you know, if you happen to be into, you know, 
Chinese bocce ball leagues, you know, there's probably a website for right. for that. You know, what whatever your interest is. So and combine that with the fact that you have fewer and fewer and fewer people every year with instruments in their hands. Yeah, we've definitely seen a downturn in attendance in classical music. I don't know how it's been in, in jazz. Has it been similar? I'm not a historian, but I mean I think that's what people think. And I wonder, is it our responsibility? I mean, can we what do we make of that? I mean, is is it the responsibility of the of the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra to create an audience, to create a demand for what you present? Um, or you know, or is it are we victims of whatever vicissitudes around well, us? Well, I, I have a couple of thoughts. See, on the other side of what I said is that I don't think that music is going to die. I I, mm. I don't think orchestras are going to die. I don't think string quartets are going to die. I think this, there's a reason that we do this, and, and it's never going to go away because it's truly extraordinarily valuable for the human experience. However, yeah, we have to go out there and market ourselves in a way that people didn't have to do 40, 50 years ago. Mm. So, for example, we do things with the chamber orchestra. Oh, for example, we, we did something we're calling an informants. So mm -hmm. we, we played three early symphonies of Haydn, and they're called the morning, noon, and night symphonies. And so we used those three symphonies to illustrate the three periods of Haydn's life. And we had a great speaker come in and do a little video discussion and talk about Haydn's early life. And then we played the morning symphony and then Haydn's middle period. And then we played the. And so just educating people and as a way of getting attention. All orchestras are doing things now like that to try and get people's attention, let them know what's going on. And in fact, we're just instituting for the conducting program at Peabody, which is one of the highest profile programs really internationally. And we're just instituting a component for our conducting students of entrepreneurship, mm. uh, oral presentation and talking about how we reach the audience in different ways. Mm -hmm. So different media, for example, and just in, in the ways that, you, that you're talking about. Well, yeah, I think successful conductors, whether or not they're talented, I think they, a lot of them have to form their own, you know, nonprofit organizations, you know, create a board, you know, fundraise. I mean, be the marketing person, be the fundraiser, be the, you know, so many different things. And, you know, for myself, there's definitely been a lot of hours in the practice room that I've sacrificed in order to be the business person, you know, to create the opportunity to do the music. And I don't have an easy answer for that. I'm not saying it's the right thing or the wrong thing. And I preach about this a lot, that I do feel that creating business opportunity is a lot of times what we need to do in order to create art, <laughs> actually. Well, you know, if yeah. there's not a concert, if nobody shows up, exactly. we, don't, we, can't, we can't do what we do. <laughs> You know, yeah. so. Oh, but you're a perfect example of that because uh, talk about entrepreneurship, how you've managed to make a really significant career and, and a significant contribution by getting out of the practice room. Well, two more things, and I'm going to let you go. I appreciate you going into the wee hours of the night with me. <laughs> I think everybody's going to benefit from this because I think we're really getting some gems from you. I, I really want to thank you. 
I, I didn't press you hard enough earlier when we talked about the the fundamentals, and you mentioned uh, one other thing that I sort of glossed over, which really I think is the most important thing. We did talk about it a little in the beginning, but in addition to you know balance, intonation, you know playing together as an ensemble, rhythmic collectivity, whatever you want to call it, a couple other things you mentioned. You said everybody's got to be on the same page, if I'm not mistaken. Everybody's got to be the same page in terms of the arch of the piece and in terms of really every phrase and how all the phrases go together. I wonder if you could just touch on that one more time because I think it's such a game changer, you know, whether it's a string quartet. I mean, we did those examples earlier where we were sort of singing a phrase and saying, hey, are we going to do it this way? Or are we going to do it that way? And trying it different ways. And then, you know, once you get it right, sort of everybody, you know, being open to hearing that, oh yeah, it worked when you did it that way, you know. You know, or whatever it is. And you get it that right way and everybody hears it and you say, okay, we're all on the same page. Is that what you're talking about? I am, but going back to that issue, that brings up this other factor, this other thing that this is very un-PC thing to say. It's a very frightening Thing for the music industry, classical music industry anyway, um, because we're constantly taught, you can do whatever you want, you just have to be convincing. Mm. Well, what is, how am I convincing? Does it mean I throw my bow and throw my hair? And, <laughs> or what does that mean? And so w- one of the things that I'm saying is that for a performer of a work of classical music, the optimal way to perform a piece or critical elements of the optimal way to play a piece are a component of the piece itself. That's different from what a lot of people have grown up hearing and thinking. That, oh, well, I can just take this piece and it's my job to interpret. So the composer wrote this and I'm going to put my own stamp on it. Well, the thing is, you will put your own stamp on it. But because you're different from the next guy, from the next guy, from the next gal, etc., etc. But our job then becomes, instead of, oh, what do I want to do with this piece? It becomes how can I discover the magic that exists in this piece? And then what you were discussing is, well, if you have a string quartet or an orchestra, how do you get everyone on the same page? And there are certain practicalities that not everyone is open. Not everyone is open to the same degree. You know, stuff happens. We're talking a little bit about an ideal, and real life sometimes gets in the way of ideals. But I'm pretty clear that, I mean, personally pretty convinced that Everyone is capable of hearing it if they're open, if they're fully open. I mean, there's a reason, going back to painting, you know, there's a reason a lot of people painted rooms with windows and tables and bread and meat and women in it. But there's a reason that we go out of our way to go see a Vermeer painting and none of those others. Why, over the centuries and over the entire world, why is Vermeer valued? Well, it's not... I mean, Vermeer didn't have a PR agent. (laughs) So there's no social... I mean, it's about... There's something that that guy understood about how to put those images together and what that could do for us. Or Rembrandt. Or Renoir. Or Monet. Picasso. Why do Van Gogh paintings sell for $100 million? Well, some of it is, you know, the art world. There's business. It's it's popularity. But why why did it get to be worth that? got to be worth that because it was valued. Why was it valued? Because it could do something for us. And not just for me, but for all of us. Mm. Now, not everyone will go see a Vermeer or a Rembrandt and, and be moved, but enough people will 
get some kind of sense of, yeah, there's something happening. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I like that. I don't know why. But, of course, the worst thing you can do <laughs> is go to a museum and rent one, rent one of those stupid walkie-talkies that tell you, oh, now about this painting. Yeah. Well, he, he was, you know, he just got divorced. And so look at the brush strokes. Oh, yeah, I see brush strokes. Okay. That has nothing to do with the value of that painting. goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which I think if I can try to translate it in my poor amateurish way, to say that you can kind of experience a painting on this level of the story or the symbols or the brushstrokes or the analysis. And there's something that can be taken from that, but you're saying that there's a higher level that you can experience it on, which is where you achieve this oneness or this experience of beauty on a spiritual level or this loss of yourself. It sounds like the analogy you were giving about, you know, like I could almost see somebody just tossing their hair. And I think we should add a third level, which would be the surface level of, of stimulation, because it doesn't take a lot to stimulate people. Like you can have a very a very basic anything can be a stimulus and then you can get to another level of a story maybe or symbols or whatever i don't know what you would call that and then that third level i think what i take from you is for students or for performers out there to try to shoot for that highest level you know that's one of the things again that i love about your work as a i'm going to just call it what i call it as, as a teacher in being able to convey those values to people and, and bring it down to earth but i want to talk about because you keep qualifying everything you say with, you know, this is for classical musicians. But I think that, you know, you respect me as a musician. You know that I was a serious classical musician. And then I went into to jazz and other kinds of music. And so I hope that you take my motivations as being pure. And, you know, you have enough respect for me to know that if I'm playing jazz music, it's because I love it and I get just as much you know, I consider it just as serious as I do playing classical music. I don't doubt that. But at the same time, you've you've made it clear that you feel that some works of art are maybe more compelling or more optimal than others. I mean, but you wouldn't say that you think that classical music is more compelling than jazz music or pop music, or would you? So, in a, in this conversation, what I've been saying as far as classical music goes, the, the only issue is because in classical music, the performer isn't the composer. Uh, so that's where I'm saying, you know, jazz, okay, the, the composer and the performer are, are the same person. Well, um, yes and no. Okay, but okay. I think that there's different ways that we interpret. I think there's different kinds of things we interpret. You know, Mozart gives us a score, and some of it's given to us, and some of us we have to interpret. Uh, Miles Davis gives us a score. It's still a score. There's different things that we interpret as a jazz musician. There's different things that we're allowed to improvise with. So they're the same, but they're not. Okay, I, I, I get that. But you're also much freer. You have a much greater range of... Yeah, you're a performer and you're a composer. You're, you know, an improviser is someone who's composing. Absolutely. Let's go with that. So, you know, the person that, that I studied with that really opened my eyes and ears so much was, I mentioned him, Celi Bidake. And he used to say always, there's beauty on all levels. You know, I talked about a Beatles song still being listened to 60 years later, or 50 years later, I guess, and not so much a Herman's Hermits song, because there's more beauty 
it's not about saying one music is better. I mean, I got up, caught up in this conversation once that I, I really regretted. You know, someone said, well, so you like this composer better than this composer. Well, I like that composer. Okay, that's not the point. The point is really, are you moved by those sounds? It's not for me to judge, is Beethoven a better composer than Clementi? It's really irrelevant whether Miles Davis was a greater artist than Mozart. Now, I'm going to say, um, <laughs> you know, pretty comfortable thinking that yeah, 100 years from now, we're probably still going to be listening to Mozart and I don't know how much Miles Davis. Maybe, maybe that's wrong. But the, but the thing is, no, no, I'm serious. But Watch out for is, the comments on my blog. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, that's irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is, can you absorb sound and be moved? And if that's in a jazz idiom, or if that's in a classical idiom, or if it's rock music, or what, whatever it might be, that's fine. If it's, if it's an Indian raga, if it's you know, some Chinese pipa music, can you absorb sound and can you be moved by it? I mean, cultural reference points are a big part of this, I think. I mean, in a couple ways, I mean, what we're familiar with is going to... I mean, you have to be familiar with something, don't you? Well, maybe not. I oh, don't know. yes. If it's completely foreign, you're, you're not going to maybe totally respond. But, you know, one thing I remember, it was a children's concert I was doing with the Colorado Symphony, and we were working on a program. And in fact, I still remember that the program was called Beyond Words and how music could somehow express characters that you couldn't quite even put into words. And one of the pieces we did was Nimrod, which is this very slow, incredibly moving, one of the variations of Elgar's uh, Enigma variations. But we thought, you know, we're talking about fourth graders and, you know, are they going to be able to listen to this movement? And it turned out that that was, you know, we always got the comments back, and that was overwhelmingly the kid's favorite. So, you know, can a young kid who never heard Elgar be moved? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? If, if they're open to it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've had that experience playing some pretty far out jazz for kids, too. So I got to agree. It sounds like we're in, we're in agreement then. <laughs> well, um, I, I think we should wrap this up. And first of all, where should people be checking you out? I know that they need to look into uh, the conducting workshops twice a year that happen at Peabody in conjunction with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra. You can go to thebco.org slash conducting for that. And they can go to markandthacker.com to look for your book, which is called Looking for the Harp Quartet. Yeah, Looking for the Harp Quartet. A little bit about the book. The bulk of the book, the main part of the book, is five dialogues. There's an opening introductory dialogue, and then there are three dialogues between an older musician and a younger musician. And they're in a school situation, and the younger musician is in, in a string quartet, and they're playing, they're giving a performance at the end of the year of the harp quartet. And then I'm able to use this piece of music as the jumping-off point to a whole array of issues involved with making music. There are three middle chapters one each about the contribution of the performer, one about the composer, and one about the listener. There's a closing dialogue. And then there are also three pretty technical articles going into depth, one dealing with the composer, the performer, and, and the listener. That's the book. And so it's called Looking for the Harp Quartet because we're looking for what is this piece, what is music, what is it doing, how does it do it? So that's the book. Yeah, you can go to my website and the preface is online. And it's actually available, if people have JSTOR, the book is available on JSTOR. Of course, it's also on Amazon and 
libraries uh, all around. The book inspired me in its early stage 21 years ago. When I was 21 years old, you gave me the book and we were corresponding. And uh, you gave your time freely to help me in a period in my life when I really needed that help. And I remember reading that the early stages of that book, and it was just beautiful. It's a gorgeous book. And you go into a lot of the things that we talked about in this interview in really in ways that I think will move people and help them in their daily music-making process. So I really want to encourage people to, to get this book. It's called Looking for the Harp Quartet, An Investigation into Musical Beauty. I just need to acknowledge you, Mark, and for being such a great figure in our musical community, you know, not just for being the conductor on the podium that brings music to the Baltimore audiences with the Baltimore Chamber Orchestra and many other orchestras that you guest conduct and have guest conducted and some of these recordings that we're going to hear now, but so many people that you've touched and how much that's gone on to impact the world. You've touched me so much in ways that I can still, I remember like it was yesterday, you know, even though we haven't seen each other much in, in the last 25 years. I just want to acknowledge you for being such an incredible role model and teacher and conveyor of all this musical beauty in the world. That's, that's really, really nice. Where do I send the check? <laughs> all right. So with that, we're going to let you go. Mark and Thacker, thanks again for being with us in the wee hours of the, of the night. Thank you so much for staying on to the end of this second episode, the longest interview we've done so far, the Creative Strings podcast. A thrill for me to get to share one of my mentors, the inspiration he gave me to share just a piece of that with you. And if you have ideas, somebody you think I should have on or some topics you'd like for me to cover, or if you just want to chime into the conversation, remember you can do that over at the show notes page. You can also send me an email. Let me know what you think. Chris at christianhouse.com. And I just want to one more time thank our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com slash creative strings, you can get their phone number, you can give them a call. Any help that you might need with your gear, they are really there to provide expertise and help. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.